0: Hi, and welcome to our fourth remote edition of the Cinetopia show and podcast. It now feels like we've been under lockdown forever with a new lease on life to finally sunbathe. If you haven't seen our show before, I'm Amanda, a filmmaker, and I run Cinetopia, which runs events and programs like this that aims to foster discussion around film and filmmaking. I'm here with Jim Ross, the fellow producer of Cinetopia podcast and managing editor of Take One magazine. Hey, Jim, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you
0: good and i'm here also with mark nelson a freelance film critic and regular contributor to our show mark how are you doing
1: not too bad
2: amanda how are you
0: great very good thanks and then i'm back with Carice evans another contributor you were on our first remote edition Caris. how are you how you been since then
3: uh yeah right can't say a huge amount has changed um but like you i'm enjoying the fact that it's now sunny
0: um so today we're reviewing three films starting with the new rom-com thriller the lovebirds which is currently on netflix we'll also be reviewing josephine decker's new film shirley starring elizabeth moss and we're reviewing the task directed by lee Ladere, which was recommended by mark nelson to watch again or for some of us the first time um which we did and we'll talk about that we'll also be chatting about our recommendations from the bfi's japan season which is currently on the bfi player Jim also sat down with Mark Cousins, the filmmaker of Women Make Film, and uh, which which is also on the BFI player. And then we're going to talk about our short film recommendations as usual. All of that on this week's show. So on the first episode we did from our homes, we had announced that there was going to be this We Are One Festival, which was gonna unite festivals around the world for a few weeks. Elle um, Haywood, who was on our show last, um, last time, um, wrote an article on Take One Magazine about this being a curation experiment. And um, just what are your overall impressions of, of, of it so far, everyone?
1: Uh, I must admit I haven't actually looked at the lineup uh, as perhaps as closely as I should have um, before coming on here. I did notice the I think one of the things that was provided by London, uh, so BFI London Film Festival, was uh, the story of Trojan, the story of no Rude Boy, the story of Trojan Records. That's it. I gotta get my get get my nouns the right way around there um which i actually saw uh, a while ago in edinburgh um i think it was well over a year ago i can't remember exactly when but it was part of a, a music documentary festival that was held here um and various other places in the uk it's um it's an interesting documentary i can't say i was particularly blown away by it but um i think particularly if you're a bit of a, an audiophile or you know the history of that label i think it's it's interesting viewing it's done in quite an interesting style it's done in that way where you know there's kind of dramatic reenactments of you know key points in the history as illustration so it's an interesting one to check out um i'd be lying if i said i'm particularly blown away by it but you know i mean I, i can't imagine the logistics and difficulty in trying to kind of you know, organize this thing. So it's definitely an interesting one to check out. Uh, beyond that, nothing has particularly caught my eye, but I need to look a little bit closer.
3: Um, yeah, I've had a little look over. I think most of the film titles I came across were, were things that I hadn't um, had any previous knowledge or experience of, which is great, because I guess that's sort of part of it is that these are going to be those great festival films that quite often people don't get to experience outside of a festival. Um, so it feels like the festival's kind of coming together and, and bringing those titles out. I'm also very excited about the fact that they're doing uh, like in conversations. So they've got like panels and one on one interviews because that's maybe one of the like big things that you really don't get to see unless you go to the festival. Um, So there's a conversation between Tessa Thompson and Jane Campion, which I'm particularly excited about, which I think is on uh, tomorrow. It sort of goes live. Um, I'm not sure whether it's a Tessa Thompson interviewing Jane Campion or unlikely in reverse but potentially in reverse or whether it's sort of just the two of them talking about their careers but they're both really cool um interesting women um and um just on that note actually talking about um in conversation videos uh south by southwest which obviously were sort of patient zero in terms of the, the um coronavirus sort of festival shutdown uh they are also doing a similar thing and that they're putting uh, some of their online uh, some of their talks and sessions online over the next couple of weeks. And that's also one that's it's all on YouTube um, and available to watch from anywhere in the world. So that's another one to keep an eye out for.
0: Yeah, so far I've just checked out the short films and um, and I found it really um, you know interesting so far that each day you're getting a new kind of, as a festival would be. And so um, I didn't know about the Jane Campion um, talk. I'm very excited about that. So thanks for letting me know. So Mark, have you have checked out a little bit as well?
2: Yeah, there are a couple of things that that piqued my interest. Um, There's a film by Ulrika Ottinger playing called Ticket of No Return, which um, I had a quick look at, some stills, and a quick synopsis, and it sounds fantastic. So I'll try and catch that when it's on. I can't quite tell um, when it's playing, but I'll certainly follow up on that. The other one was um, a film called Mary is Happy, Mary is Happy. Uh, It's directed by a Thai filmmaker called Nawapol Thamrongratanaret, and it's um, it's based on, a, as, as far as I can tell, it's based on a Twitter feed, uh, which sounds intriguing to me. Um, I just watched their most recent film it's called um, Happy Old Year, which is on Netflix, which is fantastic. So I'm intrigued to catch up with that.
0: Great. So um, We Are One is on um, YouTube right now, and you can also go to the website. We'll put it in the link um, below um, as well. So uh, check it out and let us know what you think.
4: Like love has finally found me
1: I love you. please oh, ah. ah. ah.
4: Police officer! He's a criminal! Move! move. but we didn't kill him he like to report a murder or whatever we didn't murder anybody Where did three go? Well, what? okay the guy's name is
3: Jibran. run leilani and the girl's name is actually leilani Shit. she's running too now kind of so like
0: she's... so the first film we're going to review is uh lovebirds the lovebirds um it was originally scheduled to premiere at south by southwest which did not happen and go into theaters and netflix picked it up uh so that we could all see it and it's currently on netflix um Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? Uh,
1: so it's directed by Michael Schwalter, who is known for a couple of things. Um, I think he, he definitely wrote, I can't remember if he directed um, Wet Hot American Summer, a com- kind of a comedy which has turned into a bit of a cult thing uh, over the years. Uh, it wasn't particularly well regarded at the time, but the bigger hit recently was he was the director of the big sick uh which also starred kumail nanjiani who is the male lead here along with issa ray and basically they play a couple who um the the opening scenes are basically the start of their relationship when they first met and it's kind of like the you know this you know new relationship bliss it very quickly switches to four years later uh where they're a little bit more jaded and bickering and on the way to a friend's dinner party, basically they run over a guy who is on a bike, and their vehicles then commandeered by somebody claiming to be a police officer, who then proceeds to kill the guy with their car. They then go on the run because they're worried about like how it looks and it sounds ridiculous, and that's basically what you'll have heard and seen in the trailer. So basically, it's a comedy, and it focuses on these two kind of like going on the run trying to um, solve the issue of who this guy was and why he was murdered and the ability to exonerate themselves before the police catch up with them.
0: And um, who wants to go first? Did Did anyone, did, did someone find that? I thought this was really, I thought it was really funny. I laughed really hard. Sorry, <laughs> but
3: um, Carice, why don't you go? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I watched this this morning with a cup of coffee and like it couldn't have been a better um, sort of uh, setting for this film. I thought it was funny. I thought it was uh, the the comedic moments came at exactly the, the right speed that you wanted them. You weren't fatigued. There weren't really any that fell flat. Um, they were thought through. Um, I thought the pacing of the film was great um it didn't really waste any time in just getting to what the kind of the premise was going to be what the issue was going to be what they were kind of up against um and uh i felt that the sort of out of nowhere observational comedy that they brought into it worked because of the state of shock that they were in throughout the film so they you know discussed really sort of uh mundane things like cigarette lighters in cars and um uh i'm trying to think of another one uh, um and uh whilst whilst sometimes with these films that have stand-up actors oh, sorry stand-up comedians acting in a film it can often feel like they're shoehorning their material in so they're given a moment to a bit from one of their sets um it felt like there was a a intelligent thought through kind of comedian behind the lines but it flowed with the the kind of narrative of the film i mean what what were some of your your favorite comedic moments
1: i i agree with carissa about the the pacing i think it was very well done I, I mean this is i don't think anybody's going to come out of this thinking it's the best you know it's the best comedy ever the best romantic comedy ever or anything i i had a lot of fun with it though to be honest um i think it has quite a good script in the sense that it um it makes quite good use of callback gags like there's at least you know two or three in the film that i can think of and they 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 work quite nicely with like when they come into the film um, it also I mean, is doing that thing where it's taking like a serious issue and it's making a comedy out of it. Now, the 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 thing that actually struck me about this, and this is gonna be a ridiculous comparison, I think, to anybody who has seen both films, and I I'm, I'm pretty sure Carice has seen both films, it actually reminded me as like if if somebody took the pitch for Queen and Slim and made it into a romantic comedy, quite frankly. Um you know cuz like there's this issue about why they're not going to the police right because you know Itay is a black guy and Kamil Nanjiani is a you know person in color with a Pakistani name and it's just like you get this there there are those bits woven through it doesn't really focus on them but it provides something to hang these jokes on and i think it works quite well i think there's very good chemistry between the two leads um I think, I mean, really, I, I'm quite fond of Kumail Nanjiani as a performer. Anyway, like I, I enjoy him a lot in Silicon Valley. I thought he was excellent in The Big Sick, and various other things. Um, the supporting performances are all quite good. I think it undercuts itself quite effectively late on in the film when things start to come to a climax i think it's just i think it's just a very enjoyable film um i don't think there's anything necessarily particularly new or imaginative about it but i think it's just one of those instances where a good script that is well paced with some decent jokes comes together with very talented performers and it makes something which is um funny but, but it's all it's also quite smart at points i think i'd like it's not as i say it's not it's not you know i can't imagine myself wanting to revisit this in years to come as like some sort of landmark but it is a very well constructed piece of comedy i think
2: I'm, f- I'm i'm afraid i'm gonna have to play the odd one out here because i i think i laughed seriously once in the whole thing <laughs> there were many scenes that were quite agreeable they there were, there were you know they were happening and they were quite nice but I didn't find them funny at all, and I found the two performances essentially just had the same mode, which was to um, look at each other and over-explain things. And that was the joke, often. And I, I wonder that if there wasn't more to the script than just... Uh, there wasn't more to the script to allow a different mode of performance. There was ju- It was just that same mash note of um, over-explanatory comedy the whole way through, which I think kind of annoying. And Uh, but actually where this is kind of interesting is that it looks in a way like a screwball comedy because it's a comedy of remarriage in a way and that's interesting it's interesting to see that done between a black woman and a Pakistani man because um, the screwball comedy is notoriously white as a genre Um, but then the film's politics kind of undermine that because there's a I would say and no pun intended there's a massive cop-out ending where they've done exactly as Jim has said about the I didn't think of the comparison to Queen and Slim but it's an interesting one where they they hint at that sort of um they, they hint at the seriousness of police oppression and then decide ah oh, well not really at the end and that that irritated me a lot
1: This is maybe where we get into a little bit of like the discussion that uh about like what a film is trying to do though to be honest because there is, there is an element of, like, because I, I, I personally quite like the fact that it hinted at it because, it, because otherwise it would be this weird unspoken thing in the film, right? I mean, that, that, as soon as, like, you know, two white people find them and phone the police and it's the two of them, like, it's kind of the unspoken thing. It's the elephant in the room. Now... I think it's actually a pretty good thing to do to acknowledge it and then try and weave some comedy in around it. You know, I mean, like comedy has tried to look at these things many, many times over the years and I think it's quite good it does that. The fact that it hints at it, I think this is where I come out more like how Amanda was when we were talking about um, films on the last show. It would be a completely different film if they went any harder on that. And I don't think this... Now, there is things you could do that would maybe take a satirical angle to it, but I think this film wasn't looking to be a satire. It was looking, to an extent, to be that screwball comedy that you've hinted at in that summary there. So, yeah, I I, I take the point, but I think it would be a very, very different film if it went any harder on that aspect of it.
0: I, of course, agree with you, Jim, because I think that <laughs> that's exactly my my... sort of my argument with Hollywood, which was perhaps not as well executed um, in terms of its its attempt to show representation but in this particular film it's definitely representations a very important part of of you know of, of the story and um, and by putting that right out there as a sort of like right there it it doesn't it doesn't it's not the it's not everything in the story it this it, it's supposed to be a funny funny um rom-com um, with two really um, amazingly funny um comedians i'm like a really big fan of Issa Rae's, um show um on hbo and i did i did like the big sick but i have to say i kind of maybe because i really like Issa Rae, liked this film slightly better um not to say that it's you know oh so, so much more like so much more you know well done but it's just it, the the chemistry between the two two just made me laugh and um, and i sort of got the 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 joke that you know people are it's they're ridiculously fighting over things in really terrible situations and sometimes those fights that you have with your partner are just absolutely ridiculous um and uh you know particularly um you know this this kind of trope of the date night film you know or i think there was another one called game night which i didn't see but then it's it's playing with that um with with these particular Comedians and you know an interracial couple, and I think that's I, I you know, I, I at least laughed pretty hard, and I didn't have to think too much about just just enjoyed being in their company.
1: Yeah, just as an aside, I'm glad you mentioned Game Night actually because that was the other film it brought to mind because I I've seen that and it is a bit like somebody gave the concept for Queen and Slim to the people who made Game Night. <laughs> that that's kind of how it felt felt to me, but yeah, it's it's that sort of pitch, you know. I think it, it's going for that screwball thing, and I think it does it i think it does it quite well um you know there are not every joke lands you know but like fortunately it's the type of film where there's another one along two minutes later to uh fill the gap it's kind of that that sort of mode so for me it worked for me it worked very well you know i had a lot of fun with it
0: yeah and i think also one of the things is like if it's a taste thing too i mean i don't know if i have a really weird affinity with for rom-coms like and especially like Well, I can't take a plane right now, but you know, on a plane or something. But this one was, 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 you know, it's my expectations of a rom com is that it doesn't need to necessarily be highbrow, but it it needs to, you know, it needs to be a simple relationship story that's, that's kind of, you know, explored in in a funny way or something. And, and, and I thought it, I thought it worked.
2: And, well, I'm a big fan of rom coms too, but this, I, I I hear all of the points and all, but I I do think there's something off just on the level of even on chemistry between them. I don't actually think that they're very good scene partners together. Really, um, I I feel like they're kind of shouting past one another as opposed to like interacting with the other actor. So um, I'm I'm happy to disagree on this one. I think.
1: Have you I have you seen the big sick Mark? I have. Yeah, yeah. How did you find the chemistry with Kumail Nanjiani and? Zoe I forget Kazan. the actor's name, but how did you find it in that?
2: With uh, Zoe Kazan.
1: Yeah, Zoe Kazan. That's it. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I, I I quite I enjoyed that. It's it's kind of it's operating on a minor key, and a, you know it operates well and nicely on a minor key. But um, in the end, it kind of becomes a wee bit saccharine, and maybe sac, maybe the saccharine quality is built into the built into the narrative because it has that kind of conclusion in real life. It's based on his own uh, the story of how he met his wife Emily Gordon. Um, but I, I liked it in a minor key level, I think. Okay.
3: Carice,
0: do you want to add anything?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the one thing that, that was interesting to me, just um, looking back at the uh, credits of the film, um, and perhaps could be a reason for anything that um, Mark's picking up on in terms of things not quite feeling right or sitting right, is that um Issa Rae and uh, Camille Nanjiani don't actually have any writing credits on the film. So, the film is written and directed by purely white men. Um, And so, for that fact, it surprises me that a lot of the um, race related kind of jokes, particularly jokes, because it's maybe a lot easier to write something that hits the nail on the head in terms of race when you're writing, you know, a a factual monologue, but to, to write a joke that kind of pulls that um the, the sort of tensions they're in and actually sort of successfully makes people laugh uh for that uh is is probably quite hard so I mean, I don't know whether they don't have official writing credits, but they were there kind of workshopping It felt to me like it they the story would have been written by the people who wrote the story, and that the the two comedians have kind of come in and built their own lines and characters around it, but there is no evidence that that points to that fact. So um, uh, I don't know whether perhaps if they, they were to have had a greater input, assuming that they didn't, um, whether the, the on-stream chemistry would have kind of worked for everyone. For me personally, it did, and I actually, you know, did make a note of the fact that they make a good geo, but um, yeah, you know, I guess perhaps just like a nuance in their performances, not feeling completely comfortable in the roles that they were in.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean I, I agree with you when, in the sense that perhaps we need to know more about you know, there there are definitely I I knew they wouldn't they weren't writing it where in fact with the big sick. I think Camille had written it, and Issa Rae um, is certainly the writer and creator of her show on HBO. So um, it, it's not it's not the same, maybe, but it would be interesting to see, you know, if that if, if that was part of it. I, I agree with you that the the chemistry to me is something worth seeing again, perhaps with even a better film, perhaps with a film written by um, one of the, both of them or the two of you know one of them. Um, but I do think. Um, response has been, you know, a good one that this is. There's representation of a rom com with um, this this couple, and and they're really great. Um, you know, I I love to see more. Is my point, and um, and I think it, it serves. If some people have said, oh, it just it just deserves to be on Netflix, and I'm like, I don't think so. I think it it was worth. It. I mean, it's fine. It's on Netflix. It was just that it 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 was worth. It it was a high caliber rom com.
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a, it's a million times better. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here saying I don't think it's a particularly memorable film, right? But you need to bear in mind, I'm not necessarily that predisposed to romantic comedies. It's a million times better than some of the stuff I've seen in theatres over the past two or three years. I mean, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it, had we been in more normal times, it was perfectly deserving of a theatrical release, certainly as much as any other rom-com I've seen in the, in the cinema over the past two or three years.
0: Well, it's on Netflix, so take a look and let us know what you think.
4: To our suffering, my dear.
2: There's not enough scotch in the world for that (laughs) (laughs) one. Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business.
0: (laughs) Were you invited to stay here for a few days? Until we
2: could find a place.
4: Shirley has these bouts.
2: She's gone sick in the head.
0: I read your story. <gasps> what are you doing in here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible.
1: Do you know what it's like to have a secret?
4: What are you up to?
2: That girl, what do you think?
4: tried in a bit trashy, but uh,
2: yeah, give it a go.
0: So the next film we're going to review is Josephine Decker's next film, Shirley. Um, It premiered at Sundance and Carice, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film?
3: Uh, Yeah, so Shirley is the fourth feature from American filmmaker Josephine Decker, uh, whose previous film, Madeline's Madeline, uh, premiered at the BFI London Film Festival. So we can only imagine um, that Shirley would have maybe got a similar place at a, a UK film festival had they still been running. Um, All of Decker's work uh, plays with the experimental mode of filmmaking, so she never, she's sort of done um, psychological thrillers and and erotica and stuff before, but she's really, really skilled at at bringing in um, kind of experimental techniques. Um, Her latest film, Shirley, uh, which stars Elizabeth Moss in the title role, uh, brings experimental techniques to the genre of the biographical drama, Uh, The biography and focus is that of horror writer Shirley Jackson, who many may know as the writer of The Haunting of Hill House, that was adapted for Netflix last year. Um, Shirley the film's not your typical biographical feature, however, and it drops the traditional format of filmmaking, throwing in horror elements, mystery, uh, thriller storylines. and effectively all just takes place in uh, one single household with an older couple and a younger couple, a trope that's used in films such as um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, or uh, Mother, uh, Darren Aronofsky's film, um, and shows the tension between the two sets of couples, but also across couples, um, kind of tearing apart the relationships. Um, It's... uh, um yeah, it's a great film that kind of keeps you on your toes, um, goes off in all sorts of strange directions. But I think of all the Josephine Decker's work, it shows her kind of bringing her experimental mode into something that is probably quite digestible by many of your kind of regular film going audiences. Um, and I think that's done through things such as the, the mystery storyline, giving something to focus on whilst all this other kind of chaotic uh, activities happening around it. What did uh, what did you think of it, Amanda?
0: Um, I, I agree, I think um, I really liked Madeline's Madeline and um, this film felt more approachable to perhaps people who wouldn't be into like more of an experimental film about experimental theater in New York. But um, I also went to a school in um, Vermont, that was very similar to like the 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 kind of the the environment and the backdrop of this this story. Uh, I, I you know I I liked I liked the fact that she was able to use kind of the soundscape and the close ups and shallow depth of field to create a biopic story that was also part fiction, part nonfiction, based on this novel um, that she found, and play with that. And I think that was really um you know like really enjoyable um i i like did i i think so, i might have preferred her previous film um a little bit more but that didn't that didn't mean i didn't enjoy it and didn't kind of feel that she's she captured that kind of um energy that would be an academics and 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 the life kind of trauma of of um of a woman who lives in that world and yet is trying to write and you know, and, and, de- and and sort of deal with the psychological issues of being a, a woman who who had that that lifestyle. I read a little bit about her biography and and I was really fascinated by the story because it 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 inspired me too. What were your thoughts, Jim?
1: Yeah, I, I enjoyed this. Um I think well if enjoyed is indeed the right word. Um I think I'm a little bit similar to what you were hinting at there, Amanda, in the I, th- I I do think I thought Madeline's Madeline was better. Um, I do think I, I think I just feel like some of Josephine Decker's stylistic elements, you know, like the um, you know, extreme close ups, shallow depth of field, all this sort of thing, I felt it worked with the story in Madeline's Madeline better. Um, What I will say is that film combined with Shirley does make me want to go back and check out uh, Butter on the Latch in particular, um, because these are the only two films of Josephine Deckers that I've seen. That being said, I think there's a lot of elements that work very well together here. I think Elizabeth Moss has excellent... She has excellent screen presence at the best of times, but I think she's also playing... Uh, a character, which is quite different to some of the other things that I've certainly seen her in recently. And I think she does a very good job with this kind of like very... playing this very abrasive personality. In terms of how it represents Shirley Jackson herself, I don't really know, because I, I, in all honesty, I don't really know Shirley Jackson at all. I've never seen... uh, I've never read any of her books uh, or short stories. I've not seen The Haunting of Hill House. The only thing of hers that I have seen, but I didn't know it was at the time is um there was a film which screened at edinburgh film festival last year we have always lived in the castle which is based upon a book of hers um and certainly there's something about the tone that, Like, if i assume that that film kept some of the tone from the novel there is certain aspects of where that tone comes from which seems to have been clarified by watching this and seeing a window into the personality something that actually reminded me of a little bit in that respect because it's based upon a novel as you mentioned um you know where it's got real elements but it blends in this narrative uh mystery stuff it actually reminds me a little bit of we need to talk about kevin in the sense that you could be worried with it being a literary adaptation i think it's the first time josephine decker's not directed from her own script you could be worried about like this distinctive style of the filmmaker maybe getting lost in the same way that i think you could have in advance made the same thing about lynn ramsey in this very particular structure that the the book we need to talk about kevin hud i don't think that's happened i think it is to me even on the basis of that one other josephine decker film i've seen it's very clearly a josephine decker film um so i think one thing that is quite good about it as somebody who has liked the previous work of hers that i've seen is it still very much retains that style and i think it adds to the story do i think it works quite as effectively here as it did with Madeline's Madeline? For me, maybe not, but it's still it's still a very effective film. I think it's very well made um I don't think I've really got as wrapped up in the kind of like the mystery elements as uh you know the like the story about like the the grad is it a grad student who disappears and kind of like you know what's happened there and that forming the bedrock of like the new work that Shirley in the story is is working on, which I understand goes on to develop into one of her actual books that was written but um for me, I didn't get quite as wrapped up in that. I found I got a little bit more out of it when the stylistic elements were blending with, in particular, Elizabeth Moss's performance to kind of give a bit of a window into her psyche, and that's what I li- And I don't think that's a coincidence because that's what I liked about Madeline's Madeline. So for me, those are the bits I liked, and it didn't work quite as well on that basis. But it's still a very, a very effective, very skilled piece of filmmaking, I would say.
0: Mark, what do you think?
2: Mm. yeah i i find this i find this interesting because um decker's films or at least the ones i've seen which is um, madeline's madeline uh thou was mild and lovely the one she did after her on the latch uh, which i haven't seen um they're all films i admire but don't quite love um and this is the closest i've got to loving one of her films really um there's maybe it's just elizabeth moss in part because her um i love an elizabeth moss plays uh A very uh, fiery, hard-shell exterior character. I always enjoy these performances, Um, particularly the one she did last year in Her Smell, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, Here, and as we've mentioned, uh, everything in the house, which is shot with a very particular lens, so that you get these, as as mentioned, a very shallow depth of field, so that you're in her headspace in a way. Um, And also, you touched on sound design, which is crucial for this, because um, in certain scenes, all you can hear is the sounds from outside, and it's almost as though the town outside her door is one of her fictions. Like it doesn't actually exist. If it exists beyond her, it has to have been made by her because it's so strange and so weird. Um, I'll say that I really like the the trade-offs that she and Michael Stuhlbarg give each other as scene partners. I find um, there's there's just a very um, very discomforting relationship that they have, but. They, there's a kind of they like one-upping each other quite a lot um like particularly how um how michael Stoberg's character the professor he's he's so slimely uh, agreeable if that makes sense he's so like um he has such a an annoying register of being agreeable while also putting obligations on people so there's a moment where he's talking to the character who comes along um, uh, to, you know, stay at the house for a while and says, you won't pay a room and board, but could you help out around the house, please? Um, And the way that this is done is this awful mixture of no, 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 absolute politesse. But then also, oh, but please, you you, you do need to help us. And that that little switch that still work does is is so good. Um, I would say the other two performances are a bit blanker purposefully. And that's interesting because then you get um, how Shirley affects them and affects their presence in the house. Um, where it falls off for me a wee bit is in the matter of the story, which is um, the novel she's writing is Hangs Hangsman, And um, what the narrative essentially posits is that um, parts of the character are informed by Shirley, parts of the character are informed by the transplant into the house, and that... that seems, not to use the word obvious, it does seem obvious. Um, to me that's a pretty standard um, literary biopic, literary fictional um, trope in these sorts of movies, and that's kind of consistent with the the experience I've had with Decker's films, which is the narratives always in some way peak a while before the end, and then it's just a slow peter off. But it is the film I've enjoyed by her most so far.
0: I agree with the um the relationship and and the way that um the the, the two the two main characters, the husband and wife, um are interacting and. I think, I, particularly, I remember the table scene. There was one like table scene where all four of them are there, and um, the way it was shot, um, just sort of from like, again, these close-ups, but just kind of like you, you could feel the tension of the four, you know, of the four characters, and then continually they went back to this table as you know, as 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 time goes by. Again, this also use of of seasons and and you know, and and I also what you bring up this idea of, like the sounds um, outside, um, affecting Shirley. Um, I, again, think about this, like living in Vermont in this very isolated sort of way and the town gown relationships with, um, with these, these institutions and, and the relationships of, um, being a writer, being respected for being a writer, you know, the husband, again, looking into his, his, his past he he didn't he did have a real misunderstanding like m- an idea of what a woman should do and so he treated his wife and in, in, in a way that that caused her to have that kind of you know frustration and she took that out in her work and and all of this was expressed through sound and through visuals and through you know and and she did that so well with madeline's madeline and she did that so well here so very very effective in that way
1: i'm really pleased you've mentioned the sound actually because it's something that we it's something we spoke about when we reviewed madeline's madeline and i don't and it it gets mentioned but i i don't feel it's an aspect of the, those two films that is really spoken about enough to be honest with you because i think it in particular and kind of like getting into kind of the, the mental landscape of these characters and it does need it does need the visuals to go with it as well but really i think it is actually the sound design in both of these films that takes them to another level in terms of their effectiveness so i, I i'm glad that both of you mentioned it because it, it is quite something like it, it's easy to spot decker's visual style in both of these films but I, I need to look up who was involved with the sound design whether it was um the same folk because i really do think that that takes both of these films up a level
0: and also the i mean i don't know again who did the score but the score was particularly really um you know pulsating and intense and interesting and it, and it and exacerbated that that tension and that this again this idea of isolation and um, being stuck in a situation where she was having to work through.
1: I also kind of appreciated Michael Stuhlbarg doing the bizarro world version of his "Call Me By Your Name" character.
2: It's a variation, certainly. There's there's something else to... Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the dinner table conversations, and I think you could link these two things because. Um, there's a the moment, um, one of the table conversations where they kind of cross over the 180 degree line a couple of times, but it's always next to her ears. And that's interesting, because it's almost as though the conversation is the subject, it's not what people were doing. Um, and it's as though the scenes vary between it being a particularly um, like dialogue-specific and dialogue-important scene, or a scene which focuses on gesture and um, acting style. Because the moment where... Moss works out, um, Shirley Jackson walks out the house for the first time, being assisted by Rose, um, it's like her; she can't walk, she, she's so stunned to be leaving the house for the first time, although she kind of wants to do it, that that's a moment which really um, emphasizes like the mask that she's assumed um, through staying in the house all of this time, whereas the scene at the dinner table is all about the, um, the way in which Jackson has like precisely the right word. And when she says exactly the right word, she cuts everybody off from her emotional life.
3: It's funny everyone's mentioning the dinner table scenes because I, I felt like that latter dinner table scene, just after the relationship between Shirley and Rose has kind of developed a bit more, was a really fascinating point for me. And I think it was a point where the film could have gone in one of two directions. And the direction it did go in is perhaps understandable in terms of whilst there is this deepening of the relationship between Rose and Shirley, ultimately it is Shirley and Stanley as these incredibly um, archetypal kind of academic elite who just couldn't function anywhere else besides the world of academia are really just playing with with Rose and um, uh, I forget the name of, of Rose's husband. Mm-hmm. Stanley, Stanley and Shirley and Rose and, um, hang on, Rose and Fred, so Shirley and Stanley are just playing with these um, two younger characters who either will or won't go in the same direction as them, perhaps won't because they're, um, you know, too mediocre, something that that gets referenced quite a lot, the idea of mediocrity um, being worse than being terrible because it's just nothing. Um, And I, I felt like I really wanted at that moment to go in the direction where Shirley and Rose's relationship is explored more um, because the ways in which that is, is played with are really kind of quite interesting and it's very um, sexy and coy and I mean even actually the fact that everyone was talking about the the sound design as well it did the sound design and the setting of the film reminded me a lot of Peter Strickland's The Duke of Burgundy um, which Features these two female characters who have a kind of submissive dominant relationship between them that it plays with, and I, I could kind of have seen Rose and Shirley's relationship going down that route. With one is perhaps health wise weaker, but really in her mind she's so strong that she can't be kind of stopped and crushed and and kept quiet. Um, but that dinner table scene where their relationship was probably built to the, the highest height it gets to. And then it very quickly just, it just goes and that it's just lost and Shirley's back within kind of Stanley's bubble. Um, and the next time we, we see them interact, uh, Rose kind of goes to Shirley again, looking for um, that connection that they've grown and Shirley just kind of casts it aside. And she's, she, it shows that they really aren't the kind of characters that can let in romance and warmth and love they're 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 just interested in in kind of in playing with people and and exploring the limits to people's tolerance I think to a certain extent um and uh yeah just one other thing was that at the very beginning of the film uh rose has has just finished reading um uh, Shirley's latest short novel i think uh, the lottery um and refers to it as thrillingly horrible and i thought that was quite a nice moment in retrospect of watching the film that that is what the film is it's thrillingly horrible and the experience that they're both about to go to go through sorry is is, is exactly that and she kind of sums it up within those first minutes of the film
0: well i think we all agree that it's certainly beautiful and certainly interesting and um in varying degrees june 5th Coming um, this week. Then we'll put a link, no matter what, US, UK, um, where you can get it and um, check it out. Most definitely.
3: I've been sitting here the whole time, feeling like, should I bring my emotional stuff in? Or not? Yes.
4: Should yes. I? Should um, I not? Yes.
0: And I could, I could, and I'm like right at the edge. You can hear it. Please. And I have the choice, but yeah. I don't feel that it's safe here. To You're do all that. saying bring it, but bring it you killed that off in me yesterday.
3: And I think that's why we might have planted in.
4: Why'd you let it I die? Her name. There no, are no I, don't, I don't. I don't. There are to no say victims. why that, that is die. such
0: bullshit. There's not. There are only
4: volunteers. Oh, I'm just, I just. Like, I, 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 like like, I would like to make a suggestion. There has to be an establishment.
0: So the next film that we're going to review is not necessarily a new film, but it's part of our new idea that we would take an older film that is currently online or accessible and um, challenge each other to rewatch or watch again and um, discuss it. And uh, Mark um, graciously suggested the first one, um, challenged us, and Mark, tell us a little bit about uh, the task.
2: Okay. so. Um, I just want to say beforehand that I couldn't have timed this better and I promise I did not pay any money for this to happen. But um, my Twitter feed was awash with people recommending this film. Uh, people who had originally brought it to my attention, who had been at True Truefalse or Sheffield Doc Fest or, or a number of other festivals it played at, were all, just in the past week, randomly, somebody said, oh, this is, this is online and free. And my Twitter feed was awash with recommendations for it. So thanks very much. It's very well-timed. Um, so uh, I think I I briefly gave a pressie for it last time, but I'll give an even briefer one here, because it needs it. Um, it's so it's a documentary about uh, a Tavistock conference, which is a kind of group relations therapy. Um, but the film is rather more anthropological, I think. Um, the way it's set up is that there are six cameras in the room, um, sound equipment on the ceiling and 28 participants are arranged in a spiral, and um, there are kind of power positions within the spiral, and where people sit becomes a really, um, a really heavy topic, a uh, rather amazingly emphasised topic at a certain point. Um, there are a number of consultants in the circle, three, um, they're either counsellors, medical professionals, and uh, it's their job, the task itself. Alrighty, um, Amanda, what did you think of the task?
0: wow I think that film is is literally quite a task um to watch a bit uh, uh to be honest I'm I, I quite like films that are I, I I like watching Frederick Weissman films like that are four hours of of conversations in rooms and discussing you know institutions and whatnot um but I found this one sometimes very hard and hard because uh there were you know, there were people in the room they were talking about, they didn't know what they were talking about. They were talking about not knowing what they were talking about and they were frustrating each other and they were frustrating me. And I realized that's the point. Um, but then I, 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 start to think of the idea of like some of conversations we've had in the past of what, you know, what a film is and what a documentary is and what, you know, what kind of tastes, you know, people have. And I could see that some people would not have the patience for this as much as I, I do. Like when I think of, what I uh, you know I heard like I really loved the film Zedan and um you know that film has been argued not to be a film it's an art project and I think in a similar way this is I could see Mark Cremode saying like oh this isn't a film it's um you know it's a it's a it's a it's a project a psychological study um but I I'm glad I went I I kept going through it um but it. I'm I'm surprised you've seen it six times, to be honest, and I'm curious seen it for six you to times.
2: tell us. I watched really? that I, I watched that again uh, a night ago, well, yes.
0: When he when he first challenged us to it, he said he watched it like three times or two times I and said, now I, that, I,
1: that, yeah. that part slipped past me. Like, dear lord. <laughs> dear Lord so,
0: Jim, I'd really like to hear what you think.
1: I, I'm not gonna say I enjoyed it, because that's completely the wrong <laughs> no. the, the completely the wrong thing to say i think as it went on i did find it more and more fascinating um you know and it's an interesting thing like you know what amanda what you said about you know the you know the zinedine zidane film like you know what is a film versus an art installation i think like there's not an easy binary and i think this one sits quite you know quite nicely in that very gray area um it's one of those things where, as I say, as it went on, I found it more and more fascinating, and it's just these different things that develop as it goes on. Like the, the, so they're also they're sitting in this kind of like spiral, right? That that's, and if you see, a, if we show a clip from it, you'll you'll kind of get a sense of that, and it's the the ridiculous importance that this begins to take on, right? And like when people try to kind of like you know, there's at one point somebody goes rogue and they moves the chair and it's like, <laughs> oh well, you know, this is structure breaking down. Like it's like the the it's this demand that people have throughout the, the film and throughout this experiment for boundaries and clearly setting the parameters of what they're doing and the way people kind of like push them and move outside them, it is kind of fascinating to see it. It's kind of fascinating to see these people interacting with what their preconceived notions of each other are right because that obviously that obviously pops up quite a bit and obviously i think the editing of the film afterwards must you know emphasize that a little bit as well because there must have been reams and reams of material for this and it was also fascinating how the fact that they're being watched in one of these experiments plays into it because at one point they they almost begin this kind of like revolt against Lee or like take grand exception to his presence there, despite the fact that's what they've signed up for, and that all plays into it. It's, it's an interest. It, it's a very interesting film. Um, I think it does play itself quite well to the idea of a, an installation piece and an art piece because I feel like this is the sort of thing that I've seen. Um, the sort of thing that I've seen some art exhibits where it could quite easily, I think, play on a loop. Um, you know, in in that so in that sense, I feel like it's kind of it's a bit of an amorphous thing, but to me, it is. It, it it was fascinating. I mean, like when it started off, I'm I'm not going to lie. I did find myself going, "Christ, this is going to be a bit of a this is going to be a bit of a slog." Because I well, mean, me we too. we open up with you know we open up with people kind of like engaging with their identities, you know. Because so like there's there's women in the room, there's men in the room, there's black, white, Asian, old, young, kind of like the whole whole mix, right? And I think the idea was it was meant to be kind of a cross section of like Chicago's population, which is where this this all takes place and it's people trying to grapple with that and you quickly come to realize that, like, these are just normal people they're not particularly good at grappling with these things they have their prejudices that they're trying to not put on camera but they are and then there's other people who are more bold and i thought it was going to be a bit tiresome to be honest but as their understanding of each other and the way it's shown in the film starts to play more of a role. It actually it, it does take on a slightly fascinating quality in terms of like how you then start to think about these things yourself. Um so yeah, i enjoy is not the correct word, but it was it is fascinating to see a group of people being observed in this context. Because you know these things go on and I'm sure you could even participate in them yourself. And it sounds like you have Amanda. But watching how they react to them being recorded doing it is also kind of fascinating.
0: Well, I'd also like to say that it does remind me of... Um, I, it's not called home ec, and I don't know if if the UK has a similar thing, but um, back in the day in America, we had this thing called like, home economics, and they changed that to be a little bit more about our own mental health and, you know, psychology and stuff. And so I had this one teacher and um, I think it was middle school who would make us go and talk and 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 all agree before we made any decision. And it drove me absolutely nuts. And I was the really difficult person who would never agree with anybody because that's who I was. I was just difficult. And um, I can just like in this space, I'm like, this would be a hell on earth for, like, that's, five days. That's, and, that's it. Yeah. And two, like, I wouldn't like myself either there, and I don't like this person, that person, and that person, but I'm least with that. I'm learning, and also it sort of it reflects upon what and why are they doing this is a, it's a little bit of the moment where you're like, why the heck would you do this anyway? And what's the point? I mean, I get the point as a study, but, like, for them, what's the point?
1: Yeah, I, I, as it went on, I found myself more and more fascinated with why these people had signed up at all. You know, and there's multiple statements of this is not what I signed up for. And I find myself going, well, what did you sign up for? Because this looks very much like what I would expect.
2: The, the consultants don't even know what they've signed up for. That's that's the thing. And the point you mentioned about um, about having to agree, that's a, that's an amazing example because the um the atmosphere in the room curdles every time somebody tries to bring their own principles into the room because when you're in a group setting like this, it becomes readily apparent that the th- the principles you hold dearest mean nothing to the person sitting next to you um they don't agree about the base fundamentals, and so the film kind of becomes about <laughs> if I can formulate this properly, it becomes about meta discourse right so it's like the worst version of your twitter feed reflecting on yeah. itself that's what this movie is um and there's a the point we mentioned about authority um and there's a really interesting layer about the authority of the director as opposed to the, the director of the conference itself so you have the one of the major juxtapositions in the film is between the the impetus to create art out of the thing and the impetus to carry out the task as handed down to them and as it's handed down to them, there are a number of rules. There are certain authority figures who have, um, who have greater emphasis in the conversation. And that's when I, I said last time, I have endless theories about this movie because so much of it just seems indeterminate. Um, and that I think is precisely the point: is that the, um, the consultants when they interrupt with things, they can cut people off, and people will, oh yeah, uh huh, yeah, please, yeah, please go ahead, un- interrupt me. And move the conversation in an entirely different direction, not even addressing the point that was made. And people go, Oh, well that's that's interesting because it's a consultant who said that. If it were another person in the room who had said that, they would have ignored it because it's nonsense. But because you can see people in the backgrounds and the editing is is one of my favourite parts about this because it captures what's not being said. So much of what being said of what's being said in the room is just subterfuge. It's trying to hide. It's trying um, as people keep mentioning, it, it's about um, a failure to establish intimacy with people in the room and um, what the editing does is it captures those intimate moments without them knowing so there's a moment where somebody brings up the fact that no one has come out as gay in the room and that is that that's interesting because it usually happens at these conferences that somebody does come out and talks about their identity they're talking about identities you'd think someone would do that and they catch just a, a, a slight moment of someone in the background who as soon as somebody mentions the word gay they shiver you're like oh you know they're not taking that up as a as a point in the conversation because they want to hide that that's interesting and there's so many of those that this is like an endlessly endlessly regenerating piece of
1: interest for me because the there's just so much in it well, yeah, yeah
0: the, um, go ahead
1: the, the, the edit the, the editing is the thing that struck me because i mean essentially like it's a bunch of cameras kind of around the edge of the room but i mm-hmm. I, I was kind of I ta- i was kind of taken with quite how much um tone and narrative is perhaps strong but like the 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 way that characters in the room are drawn Mm. through the editing of this because there's even things like that you know like if there's somebody kind of like shuffling around awkwardly in one of the outer parts of the spiral then ladere kind of like uses one of the cameras which is basically shooting through the rest of the audience so they're kind of like they're far they're remote they're distant and it's just it's stuff like that where yes the the premise itself is kind of interesting but the actual construction of the 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 actual construction of the film in terms of the editing really adds to it and i think it that that to me is where it becomes more than just a a curio you know i think that's when it, it starts to make it something a lot more worth your time to actually watch
0: to be honest one thing i didn't like was the sound um because i thought sometimes it was really hard to hear and i don't know how you would mic 30 people and you know have to do that but it 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 added to the frustration of sometimes that conversation because um because it's really hard to capture a you know a room like that and someone who has done a lot of events which are filming events with five cameras and and trying to capture sound maybe that's just again my own like issues um from that perspective but yeah i do think this idea of like i didn't understand how why they got so upset when he came into the into the into the mix and mm-hmm. and that was one of those moments where it was just like what like I, again why are we doing this and why are we get, like I mean, it, the construct of, of uh, it's sort of even you know, when we're joking with the lovebirds, like the construct of fighting or the construct of collaborating or the construct of all that kind of stuff is, is obviously explored here. And if you haven't been in those kinds of situations before, um, we all have, I guess. And I, another thing that reminds me of a little bit, and kind know, Chris, you haven't seen it, but is, is is how we worked in our master's class of always collaborating as a group and how. People from different ages and different, you know, different backgrounds are coming together and trying to work together, and it's really frustrating, and it's mm-hmm. done on purpose. Um, and I still don't know if I would watch it six times, though, Mark. To be honest, yeah,
2: that's that's fair. <laughs> the there's the point. The point you mentioned there is really important. Is when um, I I don't know that it's possible to spoil this film. There's there are a bunch of meta narratives, but there's not really a, a narrative per se is that Leela Dare is an observer in the room, and it's clearly been agreed, and they, uh, I think the reason why it becomes such a problem is because this is about authority generally, um, and the way in which the consultants are using their authority, which is to collect data about everyone's uncertainty in the room, whereas Leela Dare comes in and he makes them uncertain, right? And uh, it's breaking the rule that was established, there are, there are very tight time and space boundaries, that's why Late in the film, somebody who has been very, very open and very um, opens up his emotional space at some point. Um, and late in the film, he gets enraged when people start moving around because there are these very tight boundaries that have been agreed upon with an authority figure. And Lidare, in entering the circle, is interested in breaking down those, those, those notions of authority and seeing how people in the room react because this is about forging new ideas.
0: Yep, absolutely. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing. And, um, you know, we will put a link to the task, which you can view as many times as you want um, mm-hmm. online and so. uh, let us know what you think. So the next segment we're going to do is um, kind of Uh, Play around with the BFI player. There, the BFI is doing a season um, for Japan, Japan 2020, and it's one of their major blockbuster seasons. And as usual, they um, they'll they'll sort sort of have a lot of options to watch on on the BFI player. And we have decided to go through and look at what some films that we recommend from that is. And uh, so I'm just gonna pass it on to just go around. And uh, Mark, would you tell me who what you recommend?
2: Hmm. Sure. So I was going to go for my favorite Ozu, but I think Ozu is going to be well represented here today. So I'll go instead for Kinetoshindo's Shindo's rather wonderful, rather odd Onibaba. From so this is um it's about a woman and her daughter in law who live in fourteenth uh, century Japan, not specified location, and they um are waiting for um the older woman's son and the younger woman's. Husband to return from. There's a, a lengthy civil war happening between the two, between the, two different um, areas of the country, and they live in what's called a, a, a susaki field. Um, it's long grass, so they're hidden in these areas. And uh, what they how they how they live is they kill passing samurai who are trying to escape from conflict, and they strip them of their armour, of their weaponry, and they dump their bodies in a hole that they've was just mysteriously there. Uh, how this develops it becomes interesting. Um, one of their neighbours returns home from the conflict. Uh, he is immediately um, he's immediately questionable because he's killed a, a Buddhist priest in order to return home. He's wearing a priest garb, but he said the only way he could get through was by killing the priests and wearing his clothing. So. Already, we're in a world inverted um, in this in this place. Um, most notable, I'd say, is probably the score immediately because there's this fantastic taiko drums that are mixed in with jazz and these like sonic distortions that happen at a, a later date, and you get the sense of this being like a really hot place, and uh, that's partially why I picked it because the weather was so good, and I thought I need a, a really a really sweaty movie. Um, that's <laughs> what it is. Um, so. The man who returns from war and the uh, young woman, um, young woman's not named, neither is the older woman. The man's called Heichi, and uh, Heichi and the, the younger woman start a flirtation and they start having sex because this is a incredibly repressed moment in in Japanese history and they're just repressed people. They there are no people around to have sex with, and the husband's not there anymore, so they start doing that. But the older woman becomes jealous and uh, there's a very memorable shot of her um, mounting a a tree in desperation because she would also like to have sex with the young man. And um, what happens is, is uh, I won't go towards the ending, but this is an incredibly well-paced movie and it takes about 40 minutes for the first major issue to develop and another 40 minutes for it all to resolve or not resolve as the final shot's a bit of a famous non-ender, um, but a rather brilliant one the in the meantime uh, there's a problem of a samurai who comes through the comes through the grass fields um, who's wearing a mask that he won't take off because he says he's the most beautiful man in Kyoto and the older woman would like to see his face um that resurfaces in an interesting way towards the the latter part of the film um, but it's all because it's all set in these grass fields there are lots of um, very slow motion footage of the grass sort of bending in the wind, which is interesting because it's um it's like a point of suspension because they're suspended from their normal lives because it's a time of conflict. They want to go back to being farmers and living ordinary lives. They can't do that because, and there're constantly people crossing the land who they need to kill in order to in order to live. And um, what it also does though is because this is a movie about sexual repression and inspired by a, a parable about a Shin Buddhist parable about sexual repression. Uh, I don't need to explain the connotations of what a a quivering uh blade of grass does when it's uh when it trembles in the wind um so i'd say this is a very uh a very um, a a very a very hot and dingy and extremely well lit movie there's these great single source um scenes where there's a single source of lighting and it really it, it tips the balance over in the same way that the the grass blowing in the wind is tipped over in balance. And that seems to be what the movie is about, is achieving greater balance and failing to do so because all humans have that problem.
0: Great, nice. sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm very much, I got my 30 day trial um, of, of BFI player and I'm gonna go through as many as possible because I just really, I was really excited to see what's there. So Carice, how about you? What would you recommend?
3: Um, so I feel the pressure's now on to, to well represent Ozu, but I will try my best. Um, so my recommendation is probably more broadly, I mean, him as a filmmaker, so yes, Ujiro Ozu, um, but the film that I'm recommending, Late Spring, falls within a so-called Nariko trilogy. So it's three films that all feature the same uh, protagonist, uh, focal protagonist, but uh, it's they're very cleverly linked in that it is not a through-line story of her from one point to another. It's a um, kind of a, a rebooting and a reimagining, different um, directions her life could have gone, or, did, or sort of almost like a sliding doors esque thing where this is one one uh, life she could have had, this is another, and this is another. Um, uh, and my particular reason for for wanting to recommend these is, um, I guess, twofold in that I feel like as a domestic drama anyone who is a fan of a domestic drama of the domestic drama sort of genre and has only experienced this through western films his films are hundred percent for you they um, there's nothing uh, there is nothing other than having to read subtitles on the screen that makes it even slightly difficult to watch it is. Um, It's comfortable. It comes with all of the the tropes and all of the the moments that you might expect, Um, but also beyond that, it explores um, the topic of, I guess, gender politics and women's rights and rights and feminism and then sort of um, uh, uh, marital law. In 1949, this film was made when Western films were still uh, throwing women into the background and 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 you know maybe treating them awfully in films. This film puts a woman centre stage and it gives her the opportunity to make decisions and those decisions aren't limited to making her either um, traditional or progressive. So the the title character of Noriko, she's she's neither one thing nor the other. She uh dresses in a very western style she um the film uh takes place in he's a he's a great user of the sort of static camera shots so we're either in maybe like the heart of the house and the kind of lounge area or up in her bedroom and up in her bedroom as opposed to the lounge area um she has um uh more western furniture so higher tables and higher chairs whereas downstairs um in the house that she shares uh just with her father um, is your more traditional Japanese furniture of, of sitting on, on cushions on the floor with a, a very low raised table. Um, so the, the, I should double back and say the, the basic premise of the, the film is Noriko's uh, friends and family and society in general want her to get married but she shows absolutely no interest in getting married and wants to instead stay home and look after her sort of elderly widowed father um and the the film kind of it explores that tension with various different characters including her father and friends and um other people within within the community and so yeah so as a as a character she's um like you say one thing not one thing or or the other um she whilst holding slightly more um uh, progressive and Western ways of being I don't want to confuse the two things as being mutually inclusive Um she also uh, the reason that she doesn't want to get married is because she wants to stay at home and look after her father so in that way she's kind of eschewing one uh, you know nuclear family for for another um but she um, she kind of forges her own path and she goes her own way. And she kind of does things, makes decisions because they're the decisions she wants to make as opposed to necessarily being pushed one way or another um, by any of society's expectations or ideals. Um, And she also learns things along the way. She kind of shows um, a sense of, um, uh, sort of, well, disgust actually to Someone in the character who who, who chooses to to remarry, um, and later reflects on that as I don't know why why that was something I felt, um, and that's a really nice moment to see this kind of um, uh, coming of age and, and, and building her own sense of the world, um, and also um, as a as a domestic drama and spending so much time in in the space of the house, it made me realise how Good, a lot of Eastern cinema is at making you want to like eat their food and drink their drinks. And I think there's not enough time in a lot of Western films spent on food. Food arrives and it sits at the table, and everyone pretends like it's not there. No one eats it because they can't eat it because otherwise it's going to spoil their line delivery. And they actually take their time with food so much in this film. There's a tea ceremony early on in the film, and um, there's a lot of people offering uh, someone a drink or um uh sitting down and having a conversation over a meal and it left me wanting to i think we actually paused it halfway through this watching to go pour out some some plum wine that i had uh in in my fridge from when my sister came back from japan um and so that just made it really enjoyable and it made it kind of you felt like you're there in the home with them it really it sort of often frames everything from the perspective of this 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 sort of part of the house this lounge um Space And yeah, it just it makes it it's an incredibly simple film in what happens, but it's really kind of culturally rich and it, it gives a lot of reflection to the time in sort of post-war Japan. um, But also the time, the sort of expectations that we might have on Japan or, you know, the States or the West at that time. Um, so yeah, that would be my recommendation. And do go on and watch uh early summer and tokyo story which are the, the two latin Uriko trilogy films great
0: no thanks so much i i think we all agree ozu is a wonderful filmmaker and this is really a really great opportunity to see um these this trilogy so it was really wonderfully put put uh jim
1: so i i'm sure some of the japanese cinema experts that we know would probably bonk me on the head for picking what is perhaps could be viewed as the most obvious selection um but i am going to go with akira kurosawa's rashomon and the reasons for that are a few it's been a favorite of mine for a while um partly because it was influenced but i think it is just uh it is just a great film to watch so it centers upon a uh a murder and basically a, a crime has been committed and we get differing versions of the story we get one from a kind of infamous local bandit we get another one from the wife of the man who was murdered uh we get another one through the advent of a medium from the man who was murdered uh, and then finally there's a woodcutter who is part of the kind of the opening scenes whereby he is talking with a priest who also gives a short account in the film and a commoner, kind of reflecting on how confused they are by the stories, and basically you get your four different versions of what happened uh from varying perspectives, and it just it casts a slightly different light on each character and their motivations when you get to each and part of the reason I like it is. First of all, the influence it had, right? I mean, I'm not going to lie. The reason I came to this film many years ago is because of some of the films I'd watched, which employ a similar tactic, um, you know. And it's been used so many, so many times in both film and television by by this point. But when you go back and you watch this particular one, which was one one of, if not the first to do it, then to me, it's just very interesting the way things are undercut. And it seems to me, it's just. It's a very good example of the whole unreliable narrator thing in film, which is something that is a concept that we're very familiar with. But to me, whilst it, whilst it appears in theatre literature and all the rest of it, there's something about it appearing in film, which to me just, it, it just, it feels more impactful. Now, maybe that speaks to my fondness for for film more than anything else, but there's just something about seeing something which you sometimes maybe assume is an objective reality, and then it just having it so brutally undercut like that. There's also different aspects of the like the the craft of the making of the film, which I think is excellent. Um, you know, there's a lot of shots, shot choices that Kurosawa makes, I think, really kind of heighten aspects of those different stories. In particular, there's also, we've spoken about sound design on the show already, in particular, there's one confrontation, which is shown in a couple of different ways in these different accounts of the crime. And they're made out to be kind of like very grand. And then when you come to the final one, it's then shown from a different perspective, which is then shown this completely, completely opposite manner to how it's been described before. And the sound, or lack thereof in this case, is a a primary thing amongst that. So I think it's just, it's, really well told story uh or multiple stories and the influence has then gone on to have like i think Ra- i think rashomon's in i mean literally it means um city gate or like you know like the entrance like the the film opens on that's what rashomon refers to but i'm pretty sure it's actually now entered the dictionary as this storytelling structure right you know people will refer to shows having a rashomon episode whereby you've got differing accounts of the same thing um for me it is an excellent film i think it's probably my it's personally my favorite of the kurosawa films i've seen um i think it's a very good film but i think it's also a very influential film which will then also clarify like where some other ideas for later films have come from um as i say i think some of the asian cinema or specifically japanese cinema experts that we we know we'd probably say this is a very obvious choice but there's a reason it's an obvious choice it's because it's a very very good film and i think it's a landmark one which seems it's part of the season i think everybody should check out
0: great thank you and um i have to admit that i'm not a a japanese film expert um i certainly had seen it in film schools and whatnot so i'm looking forward to seeing some of these films that i should have seen a long time ago and this is why this bfi player um you know like having this season is a really great opportunity for you to check this stuff out um so i looked on the bfi player and tried to find one that seemed interesting but i had no idea about and so i chose uh when a woman ascends the stairs by uh, mikio narusa um, it's a film about a woman who's aging and by aging she is. Getting to the the old age of 30. But in this story, it takes place in 1960. Um, a woman named Keiko, or also sometimes referred to as Mama, Mama san, is a hostess in the Ginza nightclub. And this film is really, I, I, I did a little research on Narusa, um, was very, like, the director was largely. Um, you know ignored during his lifetime but um has really people have really come back and seen um seen the work as quite quite amazing for um doing very quiet working class dramas and um I, there's this this film really is, it starts there it starts kind of at this the, again this this main character going up the stairs and what these stairs represent to the, her is the struggle of her life which is, you know, getting older, having to work, and choosing, being a widow, and having to choose the path that is forced upon her, um, whether or not it's starting her own bar, which is expected, or marrying again, or um, it, it is so beautiful, but it's so quiet, and it's, and it's actually quite sad. Um, and I think one of the things that um, I, I, I read is somebody likened this work to what Douglas Sirk did, um for for american society and how this really depicts japan society during that time specifically and um you know the this working class um you know women who have to do who have to live in this male-dominated society um there's so much that goes on in it, in it um and I, I think it's a beautiful film it's definitely worth watching it's definitely me worth watching again and learning a little bit more about it as well so um but i highly recommend it and let us know what you think So that's it for us on Japan 2020. But um, so Jim, you talked to Mark Cousins about uh, women make film, correct?
1: Yep. Yep. Um, So it came out on, I think it was about a couple of weeks ago now. Um, So it's coming out on BFI player, I think segment by segment. Uh, There's 14 hours of it in total. So there's plenty to plenty to come out. I think each segment is at least a couple hours. I think there's five and I think it's available on DVD and Blu-ray now as well. Um, so yeah, spoke to him about it, the project, how they came to it, uh, what he was trying to achieve with it. I've watched the first three hours of it so far. Um, it's definitely worth watching. I think it's fascinating. Um, there's a lot of names in there I am learning about for the first time. Some where I'm seeing their work put in context for the first time. So I think it's it's definitely worth it's definitely worth checking out, particularly if like me, you feel like you've maybe got a few a few gaps to to fill in your knowledge and. Even just being aware of filmmakers to go check out, I think.
0: Great, so we will roll that interview right now.
1: So I'm here with uh, Mark Cousins, the director of uh, many different things, but the most recent project is Women Make Film, which has been at various film festivals. Towards the end of last year, uh, I nearly caught it at Glasgow Film Festival, but I've had the pleasure of watching the first uh, three hours of 14. Is that correct, Mark? Of- it is. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it basically focuses on uh, a a huge, huge number of female filmmakers through history and across the globe. Um, I wanted to ask you, Mark, because you say that you say kind of at the the outset that you wanted a real emphasis on craft and i noticed that you went in talking about the project you've shuffled the the chapters uh, around a few times in the planning stage so it's broken up into uh, chapters throughout yes and i was wondering did that come about because of some of the the filmmakers and the films you had in mind uh, is that why kind of that chapter order kind of fluctuated around a mm-hmm. bit or was there something else driving that as you and your collaborators kind of went through some of the filmmakers you wanted to feature
4: yeah as you say jim it's it's about the work you know it's about the films it's not even about the filmmakers it's certainly not about the industry you know so there are 40 chapters and i knew that i wanted to start with the, really the nuts and boltsy stuff you know like how do you frame a shot how do you do you know and how do you do a great opening scene etc you know and then i thought uh get into more thematic material so as the film goes on we could talk about work and death and love and, and things like that you know and politics and religion uh, so that was a broad structure and the changing of the structure was just practical stuff or rather storytelling stuff you know you, when you're making any piece of work especially a really long piece like 14 hours you're looking to for flow how does this sequence lead into the next sequence like how does your next question you're about to ask me flow from the one the, that we're talking about now you know so uh, I planned a certain structure, and then it didn't totally flow. So we juggled it around a bit. And um, also, there's a tone issue. You want to have exciting, joyful times, and then you want to go into perhaps more melancholic or sor- sorrowful themes. And you want to control that. It's almost like you know people who write music or something, they want to change the tone. And so that's why we changed the chapters a bit.
1: On a, the note of kind of like what was um, in the film and how it flows and what it covers, I was struck by the fact that right at the right at the start of the, the film, you say that basically some of the more famous films that people might think of as being directed by women are not necessarily going to be in there. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I particularly enjoyed was, you know, you should, uh, you know, Tilda says, you should feel free to be angry, right? Yes. And I was wondering if, is that an attempt to get out of this idea of kind of like a a canon of films that people should have watched? Because this is maybe something which has resulted in a lot of the filmmakers that you then go on to cover, perhaps being overlooked. It's this idea that they've not kind of seeped into this canon and therefore nobody looks for them. When In fact, a lot of really great work is right there if you just look for it.
4: Yes, I remember writing that line exactly. And it was something like you described. You know, you want to say to people, let yourself go. Don't sit here for 14 hours waiting for your favourite to come up because it might not come up, you know. Um, And you just want to sort of shake it off almost and free people up to go with the flow. It's like you want to surf the wave of these great filmmakers. However, having said that, if people watch this film, they will find very, very famous films in here. Sometimes films that they don't even know were directed by a woman. Quite a few people have said to me, I didn't know Wayne's World was directed by a woman, for example, you know, and it was. And so that's a little, you know, what, what I love as a storyteller is um, sprinkling, mixing the known and the unknown. And there are loads and loads of films in here that are unknown. And there's some that are really well known. And you when just when people feel, oh God, this is so much, I'm a bit lost here then you throw in a Wayne's world or then you throw in big with Tom Hanks just to say to people yeah don't worry, you're not totally lost there's stuff out here that we we all know
1: yeah I, I, I was quite I was quite happy with like some of the reminders it gave me as well like I, I, I I hit myself because I, I forget so often that Mary Harron directed American Psycho for instance yeah and it's yeah. like, it's like the, these films so I, I i did i think that that works very well and i've learned even from just watching the first three hours of it which is what i've managed to watch so far i've learned so much already so i want to thank That's you nice for time. that i've already got a, I, I want to thank you also for making the website that shows kind of all the things like, yeah because otherwise i did, like the amount of things i was the website's women
4: make website's women film.net and as you know when you've looked i did, we haven't written anything on the website at all there's no text it's just frame grabs of yeah. each of the films featured so if you see a film there and you think wow i i want to know more about that you can go on the website and find out the name of the film and the director etc.
1: yeah, yeah no, no no it's an excellent resource i'm, I'm very very pleased about it um Good. i want so one of the things that obviously i think will probably strike people when they come across uh, the project before they watch it is going to be the length of it now this is not particularly unusual in in your work because i've i've seen the the story of film and I'm wondering is that basically we've spoken about people or filmmakers who have perhaps been overlooked a little bit and kind of making people aware of them to go and give them a map really to filmmakers that they could discover is the length to an extent a bit of a statement because you could have made it shorter and it probably would have had an easier time maybe being picked up or being programmed but at the same time, is the point perhaps to show look this is not this this history that we're trying to talk about is not the sort of thing that you can just boil down to two hours of kind of like you know here are the best films by female filmmakers which I think is something that maybe happens in quite a lot of approaches. So was the the length just simply what you wanted to communicate? It was it was it had to be a bit of a statement and say look there's a vast world here. This is not something that can be condensed down easily.
4: Yes, I see what you mean. It's sort of both. Both of those things that you say are sort of true. I'm, you know, I'm always worried about underimagining something. I really like that that word underimagining or two words. Because what that means is that if you do something, you make it seem less than it really is. You know, and I think you're in some ways you're right. You know, if we had made two ninety-minute feature-length docs about Agnes Varda and Jane Campion and Claire Denis and the most famous female filmmakers uh, you would say this this such a thing would go really far and wide but here's the counter argument and it's a really interesting one this 14 hour film full of women that we haven't heard of has sold all around the world like more than anything that I've ever done, including in Chinese TV, in Indian TV, and in Russian TV. You know, I mean, this is, uh, so when, as you can imagine, when we started making this, we were very nervous that nobody would want to see such a big long thing full of filmmakers you haven't heard of. And it, the opposite is true. And we can learn from that, and I can learn from that, and Mm -hmm. I think lots of people can learn from that. You don't want to under-imagine. You don't want to self-censor. You don't want to say, let's make it small because the audience doesn't want something big. Maybe the audience does want something big, and maybe, particularly under times of lockdown, for example, we are looking for long-form stories and unraveling stories and kind of epic uh, adventures. and, And so I've been really encouraged by the fact that this film has gone so far already. And it's just coming out here in Scotland, in the UK, but already it's played, you know, Spanish TV played it in a single 14 hour event, for example. And before lockdown, it played in cinemas in Barcelona and Madrid and many, and, and in um, Finland, they bought, I think, scores of films, maybe even a hundred films directed by women to play with it. So, you know, you don't want to, um you don't underestimate want to aim. your audience. You might as, yeah, you
1: might as well aim really high. Yeah. On the note of the um kind of the the audience reaction, how have you found the um the blend you've ended up with? Because you, you you had the um many festival screens, of course there was the big the big premiere at Toronto and then really, you've kind of got just to the end, and then the whole coronavirus outbreak has happened, and it's now moved into uh, yeah. the online, you know, primarily, as you say, TV, and then kind of online distribution. <laughs> How have you found that as a, a journey? Because it's a little bit different to what it might normally be. Like it might because I think it was meant to play at, I think it was meant to play at Belfast. I think was it not? And then that festival was postponed. Yes. Yeah.
4: Um.
1: How, how have you found how have you found that as a f- filmmaker, kind of getting that festival run, but then kind of ex- almost kind of accelerating a little bit towards the end unexpectedly?
4: Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we were lucky. We played at Venice Film Festival, Toronto Film Festival, Tr- Telluride, some of the big ones. But then, of course, everything closed down. We were, there was a planned theatric release here in the UK. And, of course, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but... As you know, you know, life blindsides you, you know, either our personal lives or our working lives. Things come from left and right field. And, you know, the coronavirus wasn't the first thing that happened to this film. You know, we were quietly working away long before Weinstein and then that happened and those revelations and I'm and, and so glad and we're all of course so glad that the industry's slowly waking up to that kind of thing. But you know, you have to decide where you're aiming for. What, what you're, what are you really trying to do? You know, and when Weinstein happened, for example, I realized that we weren't trying to just, de- we weren't trying to describe something about the film industry. We were trying to start to describe the work of these women. And then when the coronavirus happened, we, I, I think we all realized that we just wanted to get to audiences, no matter how. And you know actually a lot of people are have maybe a bit more time in their hands although of course people are busy with care and parent and so a lot of people are even more busy than ever but uh, this could be an opportunity to watch a 14 hour film and and other and before the coronavirus maybe it was harder to watch a 14 hour film
1: yeah yeah I mean certainly I think it's People do seem to be looking for long form storytelling. I've seen a lot of people kind of like jumping onto series online and and things like that. In in that regard, um, just to take a, a a slight left turn, it's obviously quite worrying times for the film industry. Um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the coronavirus outbreak, you've got an impact on production, you've got an impact on uh, exhibition festivals, kind of across the board. Do you find it? at least heartening, as difficult at times it may be, that people are engaging with work, probably more than ever right now. I mean, sure, they're doing it in uh, non-theatrical settings, but the fact that you've had what seems to be a very good response to women make film and there's other people consuming art and creativity across the world, is that at least a source for optimism going forward, despite the difficulties at the moment?
4: Yes, it is you know people my hunch is just from my circle of friends and people i know um people are watching more films than they did beforehand you know like my daily conversation with my mom um, uh, my mom used to go out into belfast where she lives and she can't now to so my daily conversation is about what's on talking pictures what what old classic movie she might like i think People, I think we'll find that people are watching a lot more cinema uh, and other forms of entertainment than they used to, which tells us, those of us who make films, it tells us that we have a role, you know, even when times are bad, you know, maybe particularly times are bad, role of entertainment, of inspiration, of um, rejuvenation, of, uh, of getting out of your own head and into other worlds. These are all valuable things, either purely for escapist reasons or for something, you know, more nebulous like, you know, enrichment. So that's all good. The bad news, you're quite right, is that uh, it's a bad time for the film industry and exhibition. And there'll be lots of casualties. Cinemas will will close down. Loads of people, thousands of people will lose their jobs. This is terrible. Really bad. if you look beyond that, I think will will cinema will definitely survive, and will we have been reminded why visual entertainment and visual art matters. And but I'm not trying to minimize at all the lives that will be damaged because that's painful.
1: And not on another topic in terms of like people people consuming visual art. There's also going to be a bit of a lag in. Things that exhibitors can show, right? Because there's going to be a bit of a production yeah. backlog, probably yeah. in terms of stuff that had to had to shut down. Is that okay. where you're? May- maybe there's a hope that um, projects like Women Make Film can maybe highlight work that could have a larger audience now. Um, you know, because I mean, I was struck in watching the first segment of like how many of these, how many of these filmmakers I didn't know. To be honest yeah um you know and all, yeah. you know because obviously like some a lot of the big names in you and then there were other there were other names that i perhaps knew but i haven't seen any of their films and then there was another segment of people who uh quite frankly I'd, i i had not heard of and of course, it, it just yeah. shows there's this vast reserve of kind of like very accomplished brilliant work um that really isn't known like and obviously there's been a big market for kind of like repertory screenings and maybe it just shows that there is something you can go back to and have it seem new. It it doesn't need to be a revisiting of a, you know, a established classic. It could be, uh, it could be something that somebody is actually discovering for the first time.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you noticed the other day that um, uh, when the Japanese cinemas are opening and what are they showing? They're showing classic movies, you know? And so, you know, it's, what's great is that cinema is old enough to have a rich heritage and history now. And so even if we close down production, then there's still an awful lot to show. And we as movie lovers, you know, we will never, you know, know our art form. There's, there's always more to fall in love with. And if we live 150 years, there'll always be more cinema will be more ways of looking at the world that have already been made. That's really exciting. And that's given me personally sitting here in Edinburgh, like you're sitting in Edinburgh, looking out the the window. It's given me, um, I just feel it's fueled me and kept me alive and kept me sort of optimistic. The fact that even me, and I know a lot about cinema, as you know, but even me, what I don't know is far greater than what I know no what I haven't seen is far greater than what I've seen that's a lovely feeling and some people would feel intimidated by that or even feeling guilty that they haven't seen the films of some of these great female directors don't feel guilty just see it as a joyful opportunity
1: yeah I think it's something I got from from watching it is also kind of the um, what I liked about it is there's a very non-judgmental challenging of assumptions i find in the sense that you know there's um it's very easy to think that because because female filmmakers have perhaps had you know a lot more barriers over time it's easy to assume that there's maybe no great filmmakers um let alone female filmmakers from certain countries but even in that opening segment you can see that, that that's not the case you just need to you just need to go look for them, or fortunately, yeah. in the case of you watch this, maybe yeah. have one highlighted to you, and then it, it opens a door. Yeah. Um, and
4: I, I, to be honest, Jim, you're you're quite right. And I noticed I've i had a lot of conversations with activists around the world, and I know you're interested in activism, and so am I, and, and there, there's this interesting thing that happens, that if you... Uh, if you're angry with the film world that it has only been people like you and me, white guys, you know, or it has, you know, first of all, it hasn't. But you then assume that there's nothing in the past. You know, that and, and in fact, there's loads in the past, loads of things to cherish, including made, of course, if it's, you know, by people like us. But there's a plenitude back there, over our shoulder, if we just look behind, and. That's a great feeling, and it and it enriches our activism. It makes us better uh, agents for change in our industry, the thing that we love, because we can articulate and express more carefully what has hap- already happened, where the talent has been, how it's been lost to the system, and how the system would currently benefit by regaining it.
1: Yeah, because I think... Because one of the one of the things that I find myself thinking about is the idea that it, it then perhaps it's this weird balance of things and that you can then view somebody as somebody who's current as revolutionary when in fact they're not, and that's not to diminish their work. It's more just to highlight that there are influences out there. There are historical filmmakers that perhaps we just, we just haven't come across. Um, and that is, that's why I'm eagerly looking forward to watching the rest of the film, because um, I've yes, learned so much even just in that on. first segment.
4: Yeah, I mean, it gets better as it goes on. Around hour, around hour seven or eight, it really. In, <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but you know, if you get you get that far in, and it begins to widen and deepen and richen, and I and I think you're right, you know, because. There is a danger that we say that something that's happening today is revolutionary or new or groundbreaking. And the danger there is that by saying that we re-victimize the people who did it 50 years ago, or we re-marginalize those people, you know, and there's you know, this is the best time, uh, for cinema. I think, you know, more voices, more diverse voices are making cinema. That's great. But, let's make sure that we don't erase the great filmmakers from the past the great women and you know i would just say the great filmmakers because for me you know cinema in some way is a kind of cinema is a kind of genderless thing and you'll have noticed in what you've seen that you know our this film does not ask questions about the female gaze or have women made films different to men it's just about the greatness of the women directors who have made films
1: on that note, um, something that I was quite impressed by in the, the the opening part that I saw was also kind of the highlight of the the opening of uh, *Strange Days*, Catherine Bigelow's film. Now, obviously, that's one of the better known filmmakers, but I I find that she sometimes suffers from this rather patronizing assumption that you know she makes films like a man. That's something I've read about Catherine Bigelow quite a lot, and I'm wondering that just because I haven't seen the rest of it yet, is this also maybe a little bit of what you were trying to achieve in terms of when you talk about it you know it doesn't deal with the idea of male versus female gaze it's purely on the fact that as the title says women make film and they make a variety of films even just in that opening uh, that opening stretch of women make film there's romantic films dramatic films noir action there's the whole realm of them and it's to get away from this idea of a stereotypically male film or stereotypically female film?
4: Yes, and stereotypical male person or female person. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've heard that about Bigelow as well, a lot. Catherine Bigelow makes films like a man, and I just, it. you know, frankly, it makes me really angry, even though anger is often a useless emotion, but I just get defensive. I've never met her, but I get defensive of her. You know, it's a sort of downgrading of her brilliance, you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's a way of, you know, putting her in a box, you know, and that's really, really not fair to her. It's not fair to other women and frankly, other men either to indulge in these binaries. You know, so are we really saying, you know, if we say that Catherine Bigelow makes films like a, a man, are we really saying that women can't make films, action cinema or cinema about war the best? war film ever made in my opinion it was directed by a woman uh, the ascent by Luisa Chepico. and i think this is a bigger question than cinema it's a question of us and even people nice liberal lefties you know guardian reading lefties you know who sort of think they know how the world works they too we too indulge in stereotypes which limit people and say, you know, that women are good at making films about relationships or childhood or emp- their, their empaths. And I'm sorry, but don't put limits on what a filmmaker can do. You know, and let's see what she can do. And let's evaluate her work on how well she does it. Nothing else applies, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and it's also it's not even so much a, a limit on what work they are doing it's what work has been done because i mean i think i I think what i find interesting about about the film and i think part of the reason i think it is probably getting as wonderful a response as it is is in terms of reevaluating women's role within the film industry and maybe taking it to a more prominent rightful position that they should have is not just about the future it's also about reassessing work which has gone before and has been overlooked
4: When when we premiered this film in in um, <clears throat> in Toronto Film Festival, I, I always hate Q and As. I'm always really nervous in Q and As, and so I said C- instead of a Q and A, could we just go to the pub? And so I and we went to the pub at the end of the fourteen hours, and really quite a lot of people came, and it was noisy and not ideal, but the and something happened and it's happened again and again. There was a young female filmmaker and she was in tears and so was I and a lot of emotion. And she said, I didn't know I was part of a tradition. And I think quite a few filmmakers, particularly young female filmmakers, are realizing that there is a heritage and that's really empowering. And you can feel really alone you know, especially if you don't come from New York or Los Angeles or London or one of these Paris, one of these centres of the film world. What if you? What if you're from East Kilbride? You know, or what if you're from Pilrig? You know, and what if you have a desire to make cinema from there? And you know, and so that's why this is valuable, I think, because uh, it's showing that there's this kind of rich heritage that's already happened. Yep. You know the you know, the aesthetic arguments have already been won. We do not need to argue can women make great war movies because they already have. We do not need to argue that can women make great epic films because they already have. So, sorry, I, you know, get rid of those arguments and, and get on to something else. And imagine if you're a film student as well, and you've done a course in film studies or in a f- practical course, a lot of people spend money for these courses. And imagine if you're not taught about Edith Kalmar. Imagine if you're not taught about Astrid Henning Jensen. You know, imagine if you're not taught about Mai Zetterling. You know, and, and that's no longer acceptable. You cannot have film courses who that only teach tarantino and tarkovsky both of which are wonderful i adore those you cannot have that anymore those days are gone
1: okay well uh thank you for speaking to me mark uh the the film is very enlightening uh very entertaining i look forward to watching the rest of it and thank you for speaking to me today
4: pleasure jim thank you
1: all right take care
0: Okay, we're back, and we are—we're um, doing our regular short film. Um uh, roundup, which now, uh Carissa, uh, supposedly you're the one who instilled the one minute rule, which we're we've been held to, thanks to the taskmaster Jim, <laughs> to make sure that we keep within it every time. And um, just
1: just for those on video, I want to note the nod from Carissa there, right? That is that is confirmation. <laughs> yeah, that <was laughs> Let there idea. be no doubt from this point on. <laughs> but it was
0: certainly your idea, and we've we've kept it going um, since since the I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, um, and quite a lot of good short films uh, we've we've seen through this, so um, here we go again. Um, who would like to go first? Mark, would you like to go?
2: Sure thing. <laughs> Carice
0: okay. is, is doing the timing this time. Oh, yeah. um,
2: I'm, I'm fleecing myself too. Okay, um, starting now. Um, the film I want to talk about this month is Margaret Tate's The Leaden Echo and The Golden Echo. It's um, a film poem. Um, it's Essentially, just images accompanying um, the poem as read out by Margaret Tate herself. The poem is by Gerard Manley Hopkins, and it's the the montage that she creates is full of, I would say, conventionally beautiful lyric imagery. There barrels um, barrels of hay and golden hair in the fields. There are, um, lambs as a church window, but it's through her reading of the poem herself um, that's the the great the greatest part of it. Um, because the the poem because it's in sprung rhythm it's really fast meter and when you read it on the page it's really immediate the, mo- the most famous reading of the poem is by Richard Burton and it's like it just goes at a fair clip and you can you can just catch the like, the rush of feeling where she wraps her entire mouth around these words and it goes so slowly and she achieves what the film does uh, what the poem does in the film and by her reading which is the extension of beauty beyond its fixed duration all
3: good
0: and all <laughs> good good all right and curious will um We'll time you for you, but go ahead and tell us what
3: your favorite short is for this week. Uh, Yeah, so mine's perhaps a little obvious choice, but I don't necessarily wanna take for granted that people have already seen the short film. So it's uh, Two Cars, One Night, directed by Taika Waititi. Um, And I thought with the announcement this month that he was gonna be directing uh, and writing a uh, new Star Wars film, that perhaps he'll be on people's mind and they might want to see more of his films. Uh, it's a very simple film, it's a love story between two young New Zealanders, um, about eight or nine, and the whole film takes place in a car park outside of a pub in rural New Zealand. Uh, the film runs for 11 minutes, but it uses sped up footage um, uh, to show the significantly greater passing of time. Uh, the, two are waiting in their car- the two children are waiting in their cars for their respective adults to come back from the pub um and it shows a little bit how boring life can be for children who are stuck following around their parents um but also how quick they can be to find fun in the most simple of activities the young boy and girl Romeo and Polly flirt with each other in a typically childlike fashion um and the whole film demonstrates Taika Waititi's knack at turning the most ordinary conversation to something that just makes you laugh right from your belly uh so it's lovely it's sweet it's soft um so check it out it's on youtube and other platforms
0: and I haven't seen it, so I will definitely check it out. But um, and neither,
1: neither have I actually, so I definitely will. Great. Yeah.
0: So Jim, you're up.
1: Right, so I am recommending the short film KH4, which is directed by John Shorstein. Scher- um which is basically it shows a artist a young artist in 1960s glasgow uh, and basically kind of the influence that the landscape of the city at the time has on a particular piece of art that he is working on the other notable aspect of this is the young artist in question is played by bill forsyth and of course we now know is you know the director of local hero and gregory's girl and all that sort of thing i think it's a fascinating thing to see um just this slice of 1960s glasgow it's in the middle of the construction of the m8 so it's kind of like all in upheaval and there's a lot of like you know development going on and there's also several shots which i think are just fantastic to look at and really it's quite I, I don't know how they managed it. So on a t- couple of different levels I think it's a very interesting one to check out.
0: Great. Um so I'll go last, I guess. Um I took a I took a little um, look around the We Are One festival and I was just particularly wanting to highlight something from that. Um, I actually think uh, there's a, a short film by Mark Jenkins um, who who directed Bait out there, which I couldn't see because when we were recording it, it was actually premiering. Um, but I picked a, a short film by an, a fairly new, new and young director named Mark Baldonado called Toto. And I just thought it was kind of cute. Um, it was a, about... Um, a ninety-year-old um, Italian uh, nonna um, who gets a robot in um, in the mail and um, teaches it how to uh, speak Italian and make spaghetti and helps her around the house. And unfortunately, something happens to its software. And so I thought it was quite amusing in terms of um, this idea of isolation and connection and um, and our need to use technology these days. It was. It was. It was sweet. Um, it's, it's cute and it's worth again to take, I saw a few others that I didn't want to recommend, but I think it's definitely great. This opportunity that we are one festival is giving you really wonderful short films that, um, were coming out and festivals globally and they're, you know, they're, they're right on YouTube and, and it's really exciting time to see those. So I highly recommend giving that one a look as well as others. So that's it. Uh, Right? I made it? In one minute? Good um, point.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the bit, the main the main bit. The main, the
3: recommendation <laughs> of the film. Yeah.
0: Oh, I kept going. Normally I'm like 15 seconds. No, we've got to
3: plug that festival. Plug that yeah, festival. absolutely.
0: Well, I can't thank you guys enough for joining us again and another um, really interesting tech, technologically interesting uh, Zoom remote Cinetopia podcast chat. But... Um, very very amazing films i think uh, that we we got to explore this time around and uh join us for the next one which we will announce soon um but uh we'll let you know what we're we're about to watch as always if you have recommendations or you see the films please let us know um you know we can connect with us on uh, at uh, show at gmail.com is our email, and at Cenotopia on Twitter, at Cenotopia Hub on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we'd love to hear what you think about these films, and um, thank you guys so much for joining us. Bye. See you
1: next time.